Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Malcolm X, the black American Muslim leader, is celebrated around the world. His courage, intelligence and skill to persuade makes him one of the greatest orators in history. Yet in the public imagination, what he stood for is unclear, as his image and message is often co-opted into several political programs that if Malcolm X was alive today, he would probably find questionable. From the Black Lives Matter movement to the Conservative Party politicians here in the UK, his name and speeches are utilised to endorse one political or social project or another. Yet the legend of Malcolm is far more complex. Today, Riaz Hassan of the Thinking Muslim Project speaks to Hakim Mohammed, a lawyer and campaigner, about his thoughts on Malcolm X, distilling the real man from the fiction created after his death. Hakim Mohammed is a public interest law scholar from Northeastern University School of Law. He has assisted litigation to hold police departments accountable for acts of police brutality against African Americans and to exonerate African Americans who have been widely convicted of crimes. Hakim has taught on African American studies at Harvard University, Michigan State and UC Berkeley. He's also the co-founder of Black Dawa Network, a Muslim organization that promotes Islamic values and ethics within inner-city Black American communities. Um, today we're going to be talking about the legacy of Malcolm X in particular. Um, and I know Brother Hakim has a particular affinity with this subject, having written several papers on this. And we're going to try and explore some of the uh, issues of why Malcolm X's legacy has withstood the test of time and why it's been used by so many people with so many different backgrounds in the world to kind of further specific ends. And some of the details on this project or on this podcast will hopefully be fruitful to all of our listeners. So, Brother Hakim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on, Brother. Assalamu alaikum to all the Muslims. Thank you for bringing me on to discuss this important topic. Okay. Brother Hakim, um, 
one thing I wanted to just kind of uh, fashion first is the fact that you've used Malcolm X's legacy to a great advantage in some of the Dawa work that you've been doing around the, some of the inner cities in the United States, especially Chicago and Boston. And how have you found that using the legacy of Malcolm X has helped you kind of project Islam and kind of uh, connect with the youth of today, even though some of those youth may not have been born by when Malcolm X was around or when his legacy was around previously. So how have you found that to be uh, such an inspiration, especially for the youth of today? And uh, why have you chosen Malcolm X to be the kind of um, icon that you're using to project Islam with? Sure. So the organization Black Dawa Network is dedicated to promoting Islamic values within inner city Black communities, calling our people to understand Tawheed, calling our people to understand the Sirah, the life of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And part of our mission is what we see ourselves doing is continuing the legacy that Malcolm X had and outlined in one of the final interviews that he had before he was tragically assassinated, in which Malcolm X said that he wanted Islamic Islamic outreach within different inner cities, the same inner cities that he came from, that he emanated from. And to give you just such a powerful example of Malcolm X and his role in Dawa and his role in propagating the message of Islam throughout the United States is we were once in the housing projects in uh, the Gardens, which is a neighborhood in Chicago. It's one of the lowest income communities in the United States. It's predominantly African-American. It's plagued by gang violence and other social ills emanating from institutional racism. And we came there with Qurans and autobiographies of Malcolm X. And we started engaging the people, you know, the, there were some school students who were just hanging outside. And we showed them, uh, we showed one brother, you know, just a copy of the autobiography of Malcolm X. And one of the young kids, he looked at the copy of the autobiography of Malcolm X and he just said, you know, I learned about him. And I learned about him in school. And we went back and forth uh, just discussing uh, what he learned about Malcolm X in school. A young, young kid had to be a teenager. And then, you know, I, after we got through talking about Malcolm X, I showed him, you know, just the Quran. I said, did you know this is the revelation that Malcolm X, you know, subscribed to towards the end of his life, this message of the Quran and it's, it's calling the Tawheed. And the way that, and he was like, oh, that's what made, made that, that was what Malcolm X followed. I was like, yeah, it's this book, the Quran. And the way that I saw that kid look at that Quran, he looked at it very intensely, uh, very deeply, like his, his, his eyes was just stuck on that Quran. And I could just see from that, from his facial expression, from his body language, how much interest that he had in just learning about Islam. And this is, uh, the, even though Malcolm X has been, uh, it was assassinated, even though he's has been no longer with us for so many decades, you can still see his influence among urban inner cities. And this is something that Muslims should be looking to, to see why, why have so many people been influenced to revert to Islam, people of all different racial backgrounds, through reading his biography, why have people who have been born Muslim been so have their iman uh, so increased by, through the reading of his biography? And so, this uh, legacy of Malcolm X is what drives some of the initiatives of Black Dawa Network. Okay, that's really fascinating to hear that you know people still who were 
maybe not born or maybe their parents were even young at that stage when when Malcolm was murdered to think of him in that light. Is that because in some way his legacy has been commandeered into the mainstream in American society? And has that been kind of only partially addressed in terms of American society? I know there are roads and avenues named after him in the States and even Mayor Ed Koch has named streets in Harlem after him. Um, is it? Do you think it's deliberate that the U.S. government or the authorities in charge have only partially used some of his legacy to kind of placate people, or do you think the whole story has not been told? And is it a deliberate way of not telling the whole story behind his influence? Sure. So there's certainly been a grotesque misappropriation of Malcolm X's legacy by white civil society who seek to placate him, who seek to remove his political legacy and the message of. Islam that he sought to propagate throughout the United States. But I would say that the appeal of Malcolm X within different urban inner cities, the fact that people are still into his autobiography, into his speeches, is because his political insights as it relates to the United States are directly relevant to this very day. Malcolm X indicted civil rights legislation. He said that civil rights legislation would be inefficient at resolving the race racism within American society. And look at it today with uh, our brother, George Floyd. Look at it with the ubiquitous police brutality. And so people are recognizing more and more the insights that the political insights that Malcolm X had and their relevance to this very day. And there's also a quote that Malcolm X said after he got back from Hajj, where Malcolm X said that he thinks that the Islamic religion is the best religion to resolve some of the so the social ills, the uh, destruction of, of moral fiber, moral fabric within different uh, communities as a result of white supremacy. And so this is within urban inner city America, this is the appeal of Malcolm X. Okay, so that's really interesting because um, I know because I don't come from the same background as you from the States, yet my first influence into Islam was from a Ugandan friend of mine at university who had the autobiography on him. Um, and although I've been brought up as a Muslim, I never really paid much attention to Islam at all until he showed me that autobiography and I read it. Um, and I guess that's the same for a lot of people of my, I guess, my generation and of further generations that that simple book has been almost a transient point from whether they had a Muslim background or they didn't have a Muslim background for them to kind of enter into Islam and also into Islamic activism and revival in, in a kind of a major way. Um, and I don't speak just for myself, but I speak for a lot of people that of a similar ilk. Um, and yet it's such a book that was written in, I think, what the late 60s by Alex Haley. Um, and I read somewhere that that actual book was one of the 10 most influential books, uh, even kind of commanded by Time magazine. Uh, and that's very fascinating. Yeah, it's so interesting that the Islamophobic industry, they release a plethora of books seeking to indict Islam, seeking to malign Islam. You got these whack books being released by David Wood, by Robert Spencer. If you go to the Amazon section, on, Am on Amazon, the Islamic section on Amazon, you're going to see all these anti-Islamic polemic books. Robert Spencer, David Wood, uh, Glenn Beck. And at the very top, number one is the autobiography of Malcolm X. And then at the bottom of the barrel, you have <laughs> all of these anti-Islamic polemic books. And so 
this shows the significance of Malcolm X's biography in terms of da'wah, in terms of the power that it has, that even the Islamophobic industry, which is a billion-dollar industry that, that is funding all of this misinformation about Islam, they can't outcompete this one uh, book in terms of what Islam actually stands for. Yeah, and it's really fascinating. And this is even before um, the film the film with Denzel Washington came out in 1992. So that book has been an influence for, say, for people of my generation, which was about 25, 30 years ago, but also for youth of today in, in the suburbs of Chicago, um, which is what you've been doing. Yeah, it's in, really the fasc- in the city of Chicago, right? <laughs> so it's really fascinating to understand, you know, how, it can kind of transcend, you know, different generations and the call is essentially still the same. Um, I just want to go back now to Malcolm's life in general. So I want to try and understand what were Malcolm's influences, right? So although we've read about it in the book and we've seen the pre-Islamic times as kind of depicted in the film with Denzel Washington and, you know, how he went through certain phases in his life, but I just want to kind of go back and understand what are the seminal points in his life that kind of made him the man that he was and for him to carry the call that he did throughout society, uh, which is, I think, an important factor for us to understand because lots of people have come up with uh, different suggestions to what his influences were early on. Some you know, people, especially with the Back Lives Matter movement today, have said you know, people like Franz Fanon were a great influence on Malcolm. And even before that, that they were, you know, his father was influenced by Marcus Garvey right at the beginning. So could you kind of expand upon the influences that Malcolm had? Sure. I think to understand the influence of Malcolm X is we have to take a step back and understand what happened to Malcolm X's people. African-Americans are people who were robbed from Africa and came from great Islamic civilizations, Timbuktu, Mali, Songhai. There are examples of Muslims in the United States, uh, enslaved African Muslims reproducing entire texts of Islamic jurisprudence from the Maliki school of thought, just purely from the memory. There are multiple examples of enslaved African Muslims, even after enduring the Middle Passage, reproducing entire copies of the Quran purely from memory, but what happened was as a result of the legacy of slavery, African-Americans were forcibly Christianized, robbed entirely of their Islamic heritage and subjected to slavery, subjected to chattel slavery, justified by people like John Locke, justified by the Enlightenment thinkers. And on top of that, this is what resulted in Malcolm X's being such uh, vehemently opposed to racism in the United States. When we take a step back at his early life, look at how his father was brutally murdered by the KKK, which was a white terrorist organization. They say it's widely believed that his father was tied on a railroad track for his political activism on behalf of Black America tied on a railroad track. There are different competing, uh, different theories. The the historical account is uncertain, but uh, one widely held account is that his father was tied on a railroad track with the train brutally going over uh, his father. And so this is what Malcolm X endured in his early life as a child. And then when he went through the educational system in the United States, he was a very bright student 
very gifted student said that he told his white teacher that he wanted to be a lawyer, but his white teacher told him, no, that's no job for N-word, and instead told him that he should settle for being a, a carpenter. And so he was deprived of adequate educational opportunities. They took no uh, investment in his potentials through the mainstream educational institution. These are the early uh, experiences that Malcolm X had to deal with. So certainly that experience I've kind of read about as well, especially the uh, his ambition to become a lawyer. And that would have happened to a lot of the uh, Black pupils at that time, I guess, in the United States. Um, however, it did leave a kind of an indelible kind of uh, impression on him, even into his adulthood. Um, and that's why he became such an outspoken speaker and an advocate for civil rights. So in terms of his formative years, you, you would say that even though he went slightly astray and we all know there's well documented about his early life in prison and so forth, that those influences early on had a very large bearing in, what, in the person that he turned out to be. Absolutely. And there's one aspect of Malcolm X's life where he's actually reflecting on several other African-Americans that he grew up with in his community. And he said that he was, he was, he was looking at the, the, the effort that they were putting towards different criminal enterprises. And he said that they had the potential to be great mathematicians, um, great inventors, great scientists, but they have been deprived of such opportunities as a result of institutional racism in the United States, which just fed them to the uh, penal institutions and to have their lives being impacted by the prison system. And so Malcolm X identified the role of structural racism in the United States in limiting and depriving African-Americans of adequate opportunities for social advancement. So th this kind of reminds me about structural racism now, because now with all the Black Lives Matter movement and the different demonstrations that are happening up and down the United States, um, structural race, racism is kind of at the forefront of what people are talking about because of the uh, because of the Floyd case and moving forward. However, it does remind me that it takes a person to step out of the mold and say things at a time when they're not appropriate, as Malcolm did at that stage, because it was not a subject that was being talked about. And then it kind of fell silent for so many years. And that now only within 2020 that it's been picked up because of Proust's brutality. But police brutality has always existed, right, in the States. So I wanted to kind of ask you about, you know, people um, like Malcolm and what they would kind of think about the movements today in terms of what's happening in the States and how certain elements of the movement have been sequestered by the general population or the establishment as well. And what would Malcolm's thinking be around what's happening in the States now around race relations? Alon knows best, but I, we can go to one of the final interviews that Malcolm X had uh, with uh, Saeed Ramadan, where he spoke about the centrality of Islam and its role in the struggle of African-Americans and his unequivocal uh, faith in Islam to address some of the social and political ills facing Black America today. I could not, I think there's a clear inconsistency or a clear inefficiency of, you know, different contemporary movements um, lobbying for Black rights and their ideologies 
and the theology that Malcolm X had or, or believed in to address some of the political problems uh, facing uh, Black America today. Right. So do you think that his message, um, and people still use his message, right? People still use his name in, in various movements today, uh, up and down the country. Do you think his message has been sequestered by people? And do you think that they have kind of misappropriated some things that he talked about? So, for example, he made a very famous speech about the ballot or the bullet, um, as you know, and then also about how he had or hadn't worked with other civil rights movements at the time. Um, how do you find that kind of legacy and some of the lessons that people have learned from his life that were applicable then uh, to what's applicable now? So I think there's been clear-cut misappropriation of Malcolm X's political legacy in the United States, not even by different Muslim uh, so-called uh, civil rights organizations. You look at an organization like CARE, the Council for American Islamic Relations, they have all of these posts or when Malcolm X's birthday or the anniversary of his assassination comes along saying that, oh, we honor Malcolm X. We see what his legacy was about and we honor his commitment to black civil rights. Yet they issued a eulogy to John McCain, uh, the president, the former senator who was a supporter of apartheid South Africa, who was an unrepentant supporter of apartheid South Africa to such an extent when people were calling for boycotting, for sanctions against apartheid South Africa, for their brutal, uh, for their brutal mistreatment of Black people in South Africa, John McCain said, no, we should not sanction South, apartheid South Africa. Not only did CARE issue a eulogy towards John McCain, but if you looked at it, they said, CARE which is a prominent organization in the United States said that we honor John McCain's uh, commitment to fighting bigotry. That, that what they, they, those aren't the exact, I'm paraphrasing, but they say that John McCain was fought against big bigotry in the United States. It's like, what are you talking about? How can you honor John McCain? That, that's, we don't even have to go into, you know, his atrocities against Muslims, his atrocities against Vietnam, his support for war mongering policy. We don't even have to go, just look at his support for apartheid South Africa. But again, so we see CARE, you know, you let these uh, laudatory statements towards John McCain and laudatory statements towards Malcolm X. How can those two uh, coexist? How can they be consistent? And so this is just one example of you know the misappropriation of Malcolm X's legacy. I, I would say that there's another example of the misappropriation of Malcolm X that exists internally within the African-American community where you have black nationalists, uh, pan-Africanists who, oh man, look at what Malcolm X did. Look how he fought against white supremacy, but they're maligning Islam. They're, they're, they're saying that Islam is a religion that's for Arabs. It has no applicability uh, to African-Americans that we shouldn't uh, be Muslims. Yet, again, when we look at Malcolm X, what, what Malcolm X believes about Islam, what Malcolm X said that Islam had the power to do, he said, why does the American white man fear so many uh, Black people uh, converting to Islam? Because it has the ability to elevate the morals of a people who want to do right. And so even from among Black nationalists, even among Pan-Africanists, there's this misappropriation of Malcolm X. It also exists on elements of the Black left, uh, such as uh, Manning Marable uh, and other Black Marxist and uh, socialist 
socialist thinkers who, in my they just don't fully grasp the centrality and the importance that was emphasized about uh, Islam. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, with the socialist angle, I think we can kind of cover this later, yeah. but I think a lot of those uh, black leftist, if you like, uh, movements um, kind of revert back to Malcolm's associations with people like Fidel Castro on the left uh, during his time. And, and and that's why they have kind of almost kind of justified the, the fact that Malcolm was almost quote unquote a socialist in that respect. Um, and that's how people have kind of brought out those justifications. But I think the, the issue about mis- misappropriating Malcolm's call is a really interesting one because here in the UK, and I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but there have been even conservative politicians like Michael Gove, who's uh, almost like the deputy prime minister in this country, who's very much on the right of the right of the conservative party here. Uh, there was a quote from him that said that he had the very famous Malcolm X poster by any means necessary, where he's holding a gun and peering out the window uh, up on his wall to signify that he wants to do everything necessary to come out of Brexit. Right. So, Malcolm's image has almost been kind of taken where people like Che Guevara's image has been taken with the beret. And it's been stuck up on different agendas and different flavors of people who want to be seen as radical or different or, you know, fighting against the, the system or fighting against the kind of uh, current conventional wisdom. Um, and that to me was a very striking example of someone who, uh, perhaps Malcolm would have fought against all day long, but someone who's kind of appropriated that image to do something like that. So it's very interesting that that should happen in this, in this day and age. Yeah, and I would add to that, that a lot of these mainstream politicians, uh, whether it be in Britain, whether it be in the United States, they only started to elevate Malcolm X after he was assassinated. When you look at the New York Times, the New York Times, the prominent news organization in the United States, they released article after article throughout Malcolm X's life, vilifying him. Even when Malcolm X was assassinated, they said a violent death to a violent man in a variety of despicable, horrendous statements impugning Malcolm X's character and legacy. Yet if you look at it today, they've now started releasing laudatory articles about Malcolm X. So again, Malcolm X is one of those figures who many people didn't love, many people didn't admire while he was living. But after his tragic assassination, they they saw how much he inspired African-Americans and they just tried to appropriate, misappropriate that legacy and the power of his image and the power of his of his being for their own disgusting purposes. So do, do you think it's also a matter of his charisma yes, uh, in absolutely. a similar way to, you know, when people look at Che Guevara, yeah. uh, it's a matter of charisma and his speeches and the clarity of his thought that has kind of almost kind of been um, uh, attractive to whichever agenda people carry and then to kind of use that and subsume whatever he said for their own needs. Um, and it's, it's very interesting, actually, because um, the other thing that I found very fascinating was, um, I don't know if you know about Marvel Comics, but the creator of the X-Men, Chris Claremont, he suggested that his inspirations for the two main characters in the X-Men films, which is Dr. Xavier and Magneto, were actually Martin Luther King for Dr. Xavier and Magneto for Malcolm X. 
And he said that he wanted this kind of otherness to be kind of uh, reflected in his films. And he took the inspiration from that, from the civil rights movements of the 1960s, where he almost kind of appropriated that working within a system was almost like the Professor X type who looks at the establishment and tries to work within it and tries to get justice and freedom and rights for the mutants within the prevalent human systems, whereas Malcolm X is the magnetotype where he's almost asking for kind of a separation, as Malcolm did in his early days, uh, from the establishment and working to see that, you know, you cannot work within the establishment to achieve your end. So um, there's a really a legacy of, of that history and of that appropriation. So what would you, I wanted to come to this issue about how do you see uh, his views on uh, making change happen? What does Malcolm have to say uh, about, you know, making change happen, you know, whether it's within the civil rights mode or whether it's the rights of Muslims or the world in general in terms of injustices? Where did Malcolm stand in terms of these facts? So I would say in terms of political change in the United States, when it came to addressing specific social ills in the Black community, Malcolm X saw the solution as being Islam, as being uh, the need to propagate the message of Islam. He saw the centrality of Islamic institutions in facilitating positive social change. Towards the end of his life, he's, he founded you know, two organizations, Muslim Mosque Incorporated, and there was also the organization of African American Unity, which sadly, it, after his assassination, the organization essentially went defunct. There, there was a very powerful talk by uh, Imam Zaid Shaker where he was uh, talking about a conversation that he had with Malcolm X's widow, Betty Shabazz, where Betty Shabazz told him that everyone has claimed Malcolm, the, the socialists have claimed Malcolm, the, the Marxists have claimed Malcolm, the Black nationalists, Pana, everyone has claimed Malcolm, but it's now, it's time for Muslims uh, to start, you know, claiming Malcolm that he was a Muslim and to understand, uh, this is me adding to it, the, the centrality of Islam in his uh, worldview. Right. Okay. So, uh, and that's very interesting because the view on Islam and the organization of African American unity, um, the OAAU, uh, as they call it. So there's a commentator in the UK by the name of Kahindi Andrews. I'm not sure if you've heard of him, but he writes a lot about his influence being Malcolm X. And uh, he he has a lot of, uh, he does a lot of activism around um, the centrality of this movement and understanding this movement and understanding how um, the, the black people in the West should kind of relate to their African roots and kind of form this almost kind of organization of African unity to do that. Um, and he, he commandeers this, but without the kind of centrality of Islam behind it, almost as such. And his argument, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here, is to say that you can use that aspect of Malcolm's life without necessarily using the whole of the Islamic angle on why that movement should be kind of um, looked at in, 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 in the whole, uh, as a whole. So what would you think that Malcolm's approach would be to kind of almost looking at partly his kind of legacy in terms of that Afro-American unity uh, without the kind of Islamic dimension to it? 
I mean, so Malcolm X, he spoke to many different audiences. There were instances in which he worked in different, you know, Black social settings, African-American social settings, in which he worked with African-American Christians of African-Americans of other, of, you know, all different faiths, seeking to resolve the issue of racism, seeking to resolve the issue of white supremacy. And, you know, there was one speech that he gave saying, that, you know, I'm willing to work with, you know, anyone, if you're willing to, you know, eradicate white supremacy, institutional racism, you know, I'm willing uh, to, to, to work with you, paraphrasing, of course. And so, I mean, that, that's, that has its uh, benefits, uh, working with, you know, your common uh, man over shared uh, political aims in certain uh, different respect that has its place. And I would I would say that you know as as Muslims uh, who have a proper understanding of the laws Penwatala who know the solutions that Islam uh, brings I mean we should be at the forefront of tackling issues such as uh, racism with the worldview that uh, we have with with uh, uh, the with the uh, legacy of you know when you look at the uh, Sirah the prophetic biography the farewell sermon of Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him. We have a moral basis. We have a history. We have uh, the ingredients necessary, and this is what Malcolm X, you know, alluded to in terms of his life: the the necessary ingredients to tackle these issues, such as racism. But we should be at the forefront of resolving these issues, and we can't. When we see that, you know, there are different like secular, you know, black nationalist groups who, you know, don't see. Uh, the centrality of Islam. We should try to give those brothers, um, sisters, dawah, and we should s- still continue to work with them over common common objectives. Yeah. And I think that would be Malcolm X's approach. Right. So essentially what you're saying is, is that it has to be taken as a whole in terms of the centrality of the Islamic message with what uh, Malcolm is saying. But it kind of brings me on to another piece about Muslims in general and the and the issue of race in particular. Mm-hmm. So race is obviously uh, something, or racism almost is something that is um, obviously haram in Islam and it's not called for and Islam speaks against racism, not just from now, but from the earliest days of Islam when Bilal uh, was uh, a Muslim and how he was kind of taken out of slavery and how he was... Uh, one of the most esteemed Sahaba in in the life of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So, race and the tackling of the race issue has always been central to Islam throughout its ages. Why do you feel now that the Muslim Ummah hasn't tackled this issue appropriately? And do you think that? How do you think that we should be tackling it as an Ummah in general? Sure, and I have to be 100% real about this. I've seen absolutely horrendous takes on racism emanating from, you know, so I'm not going to name any names, from, you know, Muslim so-called public intellectuals in the United States where they've insinuated just to bring up the, the, the topic of racism, that this is nationalistic, that this is somehow you're perpetrating acidia by just mentioning the topic of racism. But I think what we have to understand is the United States is a European settler colony that enacted actual laws that were designed to systematically oppress specific groups of people based upon how they socially configured race, whether it be the examples of the Native Americans 
or whether it be uh, African-Americans. I mean, look at how Native Americans uh, through the Native American Exclusion Act were so decimated. And then when we look at, at other European settler colonies, such as Australia, look at the how the uh, Australian Aboriginals were so uh, decimated and look at the ideologies that went into the decimation of the indigenous people of Australia. And, and the, the, so this system, when we think about racism, it, it has an impact politically on the entire scope of international relations. Look at the ideologies and contemporary political thought, whether it be uh, the hegemonic stability theory, whether it be the theory of uh, manifest destiny, all of these are coming from this belief of Europeans that white supremacy is the law of the land and that it should be imposed on other countries. White supremacy is as much as a political ideology of, as much as a political ideology of liberalism and white supremacy as a worldview was an ideology adhered to by the foundational thinkers of liberalism. And so I think that Muslims, uh, the Ummah, they, they need more education on the centrality, especially uh, African-American Muslims, we already have these lessons. I'm speaking to other Muslims from other parts of the world, need to fully understand how white supremacy has impacted the entire scope of international relations. On the last podcast uh, that I came on with the uh, Thinking uh, Muslim podcast, I outlined how different uh, police officers who were brutalizing African-Americans in the United States, how they later oversaw torture of Muslims in Guantanamo Bay. There was one uh, uh, prison guard, white prison guard, who beat up an African-American in prison, wrote KKK in his blood, and somehow later he's overseeing torture of Muslims in Abu Ghraib in Iraq. Is this a coincidence that we have uh, this white police officer, a white prison correctional guard, beating up an African-American, putting KKK in his blood, and then we see these images coming out of Abu Ghraib. That's not a coincidence. This is what white supremacy is about. Mm, sure. And, and one of the things that we've talked um, at length about on this project is also the kind of inherent chauvinism within liberalism and how even kind of the founding fathers who were said to be um, such great and aspiring and influential and uh, um, figures in American history were themselves victim to this kind of chauvinism and how from the very first formations of the state, it had race had a particular context in the United States. Um, and that particular context in the United States is something that's not sort of appreciated when we talk about or look at race from other lands apart from the United States, because it's a totally different and it's a unique perspective on race that the United States has, as opposed to other areas of Europe, for example, or the subcontinent or wherever, where here, I think in, in Europe and in the UK in particular, the issues of race are less overt, but just as probably insidious, right? Yeah, so uh, one example that, that, that it keeps reoccurring in that I think even if you look at the last interview that Malcolm X had with Sayyid Ramadan, where Malcolm X, he's Sunni Muslim, died a Sunni Muslim, alhamdulillah, but he's still speaking about, you know, needing to address certain issues that are specific to African-American communities, needing to address white supremacy, needing to address structural racism. He never gave up that fight against white supremacy. He moved, he elevated his uh, level of political analysis. No, not all white people 
are devils. That's a totally false belief. But Europeans in the United States have enacted certain laws, certain legislation that have made life for African-Americans absolutely horrendous. And we need to address that this manifestation of structural racism. But if you look at that last interview with uh, Saeed Ramadan, he he uh, sort of misinterprets Malcolm X's you know legacy of uh, desire to fight institutional racism and his emphasis on the African American community with nationalism. And this is a conflation that is reoccurring within how you know many so called Muslim intellectuals are addressing the topic of racism in the United States, where, yes, we know what Islam promotes as an ideal that we should not uh, look at each other based upon, or we should not attribute moral qualities based upon race, based upon their color. But people misinterpret that to say, oh, you know, focus on white supremacy, focus on racism in the United States, that this is somehow Islamically uh, problematic when it's not at all. This is something that's very Islamic to tackle on uh, issues of injustice, issues of white supremacy, and it's something that as Muslims we should be engaging in. Right. Okay. Um, Akim, I just want to kind of bring ourselves to another part of Malcolm's legacy, which is uh, almost the international dimension that he has, uh, that he had, or the world view that he had, which I find quite fascinating because even looking through his life, he met various world leaders at, at his um, stage in his life. He was at the United Nations meeting with people like Fidel Castro and Jamal Abdel Nasser and Patrice Mamumba. Um, and then, you know, he looked at the world in a very different way than just a civil rights leader in the, in the United States. So could you kind of expand upon or talk to us or inform our listeners about how he looked at the world, what his thinking was, and how that has kind of developed today? Sure. One of uh, Malcolm X's speeches, he talks about how the same man that attacked our people in the Congo, who colonized our people in the Congo, uh, the Belgians who um, colonized our people in Kenya, they did the same thing in Pakistan and Afghanistan. And so Malcolm X, he often, what Malcolm X's strategy was, is that he wanted to indict the um, United States on a global level to different people in the United, to pe- people across the international scene. So America liked to project this false image that it was the beacon of freedom and it was the beacon of liberty where Malcolm X was going going across the world saying, look at what you're doing to the African-American people. And he wanted to destroy or decimate the public relations ability of the United States to project itself in this liberating, in this uh, sort of, oh, we're about freedom and we're about uh, liberty. And he also wanted to forge alliances to address common problems that he was, he lived in the era of colonialism, of Asia, colonialism in Africa, a neo-colonialism. And he wanted to see, okay, we see that these people are impacted by the legacy of colonialism. We see how African-Americans are impacted by the legacy of slavery. There's a common unifying theme. And so he wanted to forge different alliances uh, with different parts of of the world. And I just want to say, you know, uh, what, you know, many people will do, they'll see a image of Malcolm X and Castro and say, oh man, look at, you know, Malcolm X with the socialist. He must've been a socialist. No, 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 no. You can, you know, forge different political alliances. You can 
you know, meet a brother or, you know, meet, meet someone without adopting their political worldview for certain strategic aims. And so Malcolm X's primary focus was just indicting the United States on a moral level for what it was doing to the African-American communities. Right. So in terms of that worldview, that's where he had kind of centered in terms of injustice that was committed by the United States, whether that was in Vietnam at the time or anywhere else at the time. Um, but he's left a legacy, right? Mm-hmm. So he's just left a legacy for people right down from Indonesia to uh, someone like of a Pakistani background like me or anybody else. And that legacy has almost kind of fermented itself into this Islamic belief that there is, uh, you know, the, the fight against colonialism, the fight against kind of, you know, this onset of this muscular liberalism as we see now today throughout the world. So in terms of Malcolm's uh, legacy and the way it has kind of transpired today, it's kind of really evident. And certainly from the stories that you tell us of about the the young boys in, where was it, Chicago, Chicago yeah. or Boston, um, that's kind of really inspirational to people to to understand that, you know, young people today are still taken in by the message and the call uh, that we had from Malcolm all those years ago. So, um I wanted to just kind of cover this aspect and, and going back to some of that work that you're doing in, in Chicago and Boston. Um, the people that kind of you speak to on that basis and the messages that they come across, how do they kind of then enact the legacy? How do they kind of change their lives and what do they actually do? You know, how do they kind of appropriate that, that kind of message that you give to them? So, you know, unfortunately, as a result of the legacy of structural racism in the United States, there's this, you know, nihilism within many uh, different, you know, inner cities where, you know, you know, the life has no purpose. You know, they just live in just to give give by. But they're inspired by Malcolm X's story of transformation. And this is, you know, part of the early life of Malcolm X, where he was involved in all sorts of crime and all sorts of all sorts of vice. But they they through reading Malcolm X's autobiography. So they can see parallels with their own life. Yeah, with their own life. This is one of the most important Mm. uh, aspects of Malcolm X's um, legacy. So, you know, I've encountered many who have, you know, reverted to Islam, you know, through the, either, you know, they converted through reading his biography or they already uh, work, became Muslim and they read his biography and it just inspired their Iman and it just inspired them to further that transformation is interesting, even in Barack Obama, and I'm very critical of Barack Obama, but even his autobiography, he um, speaks, uh, when, before he became president, he was doing some community organizing in uh, different parts of uh, Chicago, and he encountered several young uh, African-Americans who reverted uh, to Islam through being inspired by his autobiography, and he engages them in a, a conversation about uh, Malcolm X and uh, Obama, of course, he took this. Um, he took he, where he was. Obama was almost like speaking down to them, but o- Obama even he read Malcolm X's autobiography and he said that he encountered he had read other black thinkers such as James Baldwin, uh, such as W. E. B. Du Bois, but he encountered this like almost depressed, depressive, uh, pessimistic outlook on life, but. In Malcolm X's biography, just encountered this uh, transformation and this uh, inspiration, and he saw the impact that it had on some of the kids that he was working with at that time. Unfortunately, you know, Obama he did, he sold out Malcolm X's political legacy to join uh, the white liberal establishment. And that's very uh, disappointing, but you know, we can see from that 
the continued impact that Malcolm X's autobiography and that his life is having. So, and that's quite a that's quite a revealing fact, actually, that you know somebody like Barack Obama was also reading that autobiography and was also influenced in some way from 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 Malcolm, um, whatever direction his life took afterwards. Um, I think it would be amiss of us not to talk about Malcolm's relationship maybe with the Nation of Islam and what caused him to change and become a Sunni Muslim and understand that aspect also. And I know you want to kind of talk about especially uh, Malcolm X's janazah, which is often forgotten about and the words that were used there. So could you just highlight in a in a very short manner about the relationship Malcolm had initially with joining the Nation of Islam and why he left and the reasons for his leaving, and then also about um, the Janaza of Malcolm X, which was quite uh, quite an important part. Sure, so Malcolm X, he first was exposed to the teachings of the nation while he was incarcerated. And despite, you know, not having any true understanding of, you know, Tawheed and finality of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, what the nation did was they capitalized on the the resentment that African-Americans had against white supremacy and social injustice. And they appropriated aspects of some of the morals that Islam uh, teaches in terms of personal discipline. And Malcolm X was attracted by that and uh, he, he joined uh, based upon that. But Malcolm X was so significant about his uh, conversion to uh, Sunni Islam is that he actually saw it as the way forward to addressing the issues of uh, addressing the issues of structural racism. I know many people, they like to uh, go back to a speech on Hajj where he spoke about uh, seeing different, the, the power of the uh, Hajj, the power of the pilgrimage yeah. and seeing people. Which is quite an important yeah. aspect in his yeah. life and, and, you know, and where he talked about white people being on the same Hajj as him and the experiences that he had there, um, which was quite a transformational moment, uh, especially in terms of the autobiography and his life that people always refer to. So Yeah, and so one, one thing of significance that Malcolm X says in one of the last interviews of his life, where, where Malcolm X, he was actually uh, largely uh, responsible for increasing uh, the numbers of the Nation of Islam throughout the United States. But then he comments saying, you know, if I could do this, just imagine what I can do for the true uh, Islam. The, uh, and unfortunately, he was assassinated before he could carry out some of the different objectives that he had. So I would say it's incumbent upon Muslims uh, today to work to continue uh, that dawah to work to, to continue that legacy that he had and the passion that he had for dawah and propagating the message of Islam through the neighborhoods that he grew up in. Okay, and what and you had some particular aspects of Malcolm X's janazah that you wanted to kind of relate to the audience today uh, in terms of things that we probably haven't heard about before. Um, especially in terms of what people were trying to do at his janazah. So um, could you just kind of expand upon that, please? Sure. So there was a book titled I Buried Malcolm X by Hesham Jabra. And he was the, he led Malcolm X's janazah. He led the funeral prayers. And he writes about this in his book where he says that the United States government put pressure on different Muslim organizations at that time not to attend his janazah. And to give you his specific words, um, he says, 
that Hassan informed me that we would not have, well, they were looking for places of, for, to carry out his janazah. They were struggling to find a place. And he goes on to say, after a bit of probing, he said that he had been informed that Hajj Malik al-Shabazz must not receive a Muslim funeral because it might further jeopardize the progress that Orthodox Sunni Muslim community was making. Plus, he had received some phone call threats. And he goes on to say that most Muslims that were here from Muslim countries were either students or trying to acquire a green card. And the Orthodox Muslims born in America were in an embryonic stage in performing all Muslim rights. And so you have uh, Imam Khalid uh, who, who gives some further context to this where uh, Sister Betty Shabazz was reported to have said that her and her family, they were treated like they were lepers. Uh, by different- After the Janazah itself. In the events leading to the janazah, when they were trying to organize it, because the United States had put pressure on different Muslims not to be associated with Malcolm X or his family, and because Malcolm X at that time was viewed as such a counter-hegemonic figure, the New York Times vilifying him. Malcolm X was uh, today. Malcolm X is this mainstream figure where people, you as you mentioned, the conservative politician you know, putting an image up of Malcolm X. When Malcolm X died, that was not the perception. Malcolm X was hated by the establishment. He was hated by the United States government. And they did not want people to attend his uh, janazah. So there's even the the reports are that they were struggling to find a place to attend his janazah. And what he says in this uh, book, I Buried Malcolm X, is that they fear that if different Muslims came to his janazah, the United States government feared that this would legitimize Malcolm X. And so this is what they did not want to happen. So that's really strange because um, a very famous episode in Malcolm's life was the Hilton Johnson incident at, in the Harlem police station, um, where he kind of signaled, and I think this has been depicted in the mm-hmm. film as well, where he signaled um, the members of the Nation of Islam to leave very quietly. Uh, at that incident and it was commented upon by the police officers there that you know this is too much power for one man to have and that was in his life but they still feared that power while even while he was dead so this just goes something to show about the legacy of the man as to the kind of fear and the kind of almost awe that he created even amongst his enemies really in that in that manner um uh hakim this has been a very useful uh podcast and i think you've shed a lot of light on the legacy of malcolm x and i hope there is uh, enough in there enough material in there to allow people and especially the youth of today to kind of uh, aspire to read more about the life of malik al-shabazz or malcolm x and understand his legacy in the true sense or in the kind of the whole sense that it should be understood in uh, and also you know appropriate his legacy appro- you know in the right manner, really, rather than kind of misappropriate portions of his legacy, as as we've discussed, that tends to happen in some way, or shape, or form. Um, are there any last messages that you'd like to kind of leave our audience with, especially the youth of today, and kind of draw parallels with some of the work that you're doing in Chicago and in Boston with the youth in the United States, and how you kind of um, take Malcolm's legacy and inspire the youth of that country in, in a similar way? Could you kind of inspire the Muslims here today? Sure. First, I want to thank you for bringing me on. It's always a pleasure to appear on the Thinking Muslim podcast to discuss these critical topics. One thing that I do want to say is when it comes to Malcolm X's life, it, he, he was the most 
um, salient critic of racism in the United States. He was unabashed and uncompromising in his critique of structural racism in the United States. And so for those who are inspired by Malcolm X's life, for those who want to do justice to his political legacy, never diminish the racism that African-Americans are facing in the United States. Actually, you know, make efforts, take initiatives that, you know, African-American Muslims, they're as much a part of the Ummah, and whether it be issues of police brutality, whether it be issues of, you know, usurious interests, uh, banking and predatory lending that's sucking the economic vitality of African-American communities, or whether it be a whole host of social ills, that they are as a much, that these issues of police brutality, they are much of Islamic issues that Muslims need to be at the forefront of addressing as Palestine, as Kashmir, that this is the uh, true legacy of Malcolm X. And so uh, support, you know, African-American communities, do more outreach and more connection. Inshallah, we can be a stronger Ummah. Thank you for having me on. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.